Hello again, everybody. This is Tom, and you're listening to You Can't Win. So we ended last episode looking at what Seanetta Moore had spoken about when she was admitted to a hospital. Larry King's name had begun appearing at the Omaha Police Department with all these various reports coming in. And so this was going on even before Moore's hospitalization. So we're kind of backtracking a few months uh, to look at what the police were doing. So at the outset, the police chief, Robert Wadman, declared in newspapers that King had been thoroughly investigated and that the allegations had no substance. Uh, Wadman himself is sort of an interesting character. For the sake of brevity, I'm not going to go into it too much, but I will note simply that he is a notorious figure with ties to the local FBI. Uh, he was spoken highly of in the Omaha World Herald during uh various controversies, uh, especially involving him and the mayor. Um, and he was actually known nationally at, at some point for, you know, 15 minutes of fame uh, for an instrumental role in the apprehension of a, a killer called Gary Gilmore. So about the mayor, uh, he and the mayor frequently would butt heads and um, Wadman was able to successfully threaten and intimidate the mayor and his family uh, after kind of having a disagreement, they were putting like eight hour a day surveillance on the mayor's brother-in-law and all this sort of stuff. So point being, he has resources, he has connections and is uh, a little bit of a sleazy kind of guy. So uh, King claimed Wadman was a close friend and said that he would be in his corner 100% whenever he was in trouble. Wadman strongly denied that there was any kind of friendship like that. He said that he was suspicious of King's gaudy display of wealth. Wadman claims to only have met King a handful of times, but Wadman does appear on King's party guest lists, uh, variably marked with a no, uh, and other times just marked nothing at all, which sort of implies that it wasn't denied, you know, so that he maybe did attend. Um, the Franklin Credit Union also threw a party for Wadman when he took over as chief in 1982, and uh, Wadman has a documented history of doing favors for King. He retrieved a briefcase that was confiscated during a drug bust on behalf of a relative of King's. Uh, Wadman explains this as saying that he would have done so for any John Q. citizen. The first documented appearance of Larry King in the police department records is in May 1988. 24-year-old blonde-haired man with a mustache by the name of Rusty Nelson uh, is reported to have approached a 17-year-old girl working at an Omaha supermarket where he introduces himself as a photographer, says he happens to be looking for red-haired models, and he invites the girl to work for him and gives her his card. When she got home, she called Nelson, left a message on his machine, and Nelson called back almost immediately. They set up an appointment, and the girl requested that her mother accompany her, which Nelson agreed to. Uh, Nelson's studio was located in a luxury apartment complex called the Twin Towers, and the extravagant furnishings impressed both the mother and the daughter. Nelson served them strawberries and champagne, and commented that his boss likes to keep the place well stocked which was a red flag to the mother, since Nelson had told her that he was self-employed. The mother and daughter signed a minor release form, and the photo shoot commenced. Over the course of five hours, they became increasingly uncomfortable, as Nelson made repeated references to photographing her in her birthday suit, 
and making her bear more and more skin as well as put on lingerie. Uh, the mother and daughter both declined these advances. Um, although during the shoot, the girl's mother started to look around the apartment and she actually found pornographic pictures of girls who looked quite young, as young as 12 years old. She quickly told her daughter that it was time to go, and before they left, Nelson managed to invite the girl back to his studio and insisted that on that time, on that occasion, that her mother not accompany her, claiming that he felt the mother made the girl nervous. The next day, the mother phoned some of the agencies Nelson had provided as references. They didn't speak highly of Nelson, they called him a pervert and told her not to let her daughter near him. The mother decided to report Nelson to the OPD, the Omaha Police Department, and the police opened an investigation. The next day, a police officer interviewed the owner of the Twin Towers for information on Nelson. The owner told him that Nelson lived there in an apartment subletted to him by Larry King. Nelson claimed that he was a small-town farm boy looking to make it as a photographer in the city after being discharged from the army. Nelson said he was photographing a drag show at a gay bar in Omaha when King noticed him and told him he was looking for a photographer and wanted to hire him. The police spotted a van registered to Nelson in the Twin Towers parking lot. They ran the plates and found no prior convictions except for a speeding ticket. The police also talked to a photographer that had hired Nelson as a test photographer six months earlier. He stated that Nelson was indeed a talented photographer, even though his portfolio contained an inordinate number of nude females. However, on the job, Nelson was rude, excessive, and unprofessional, and he had to let him go after an altercation with a male model. The initial OPD reports do list child pornography and possible child pornography under offense, with nothing under suspect. Two weeks later, a supplemental report is filed on the CP investigation, and Larry King's name is under the suspect header now. The report contained an interview with the property manager of a second apartment building in Omaha, from which King had rented a different luxury apartment. King had paid the entire year's rent on a one-year lease in advance. The officer conducting the interview noted that the concurrent rental of multiple luxury apartments struck him as very strange. The property manager relayed rumors that King was a drug dealer and that he had a penchant for young men or boys. A second interview with the owner revealed that in addition to Nelson's apartment, King also rented the tower's penthouse apartment. Additionally, he had spent up to $50,000 refurbishing it. The owner recalled that King had bought a couch for it that wouldn't fit in the elevator, so he rented a crane for $1,200 to have it hoisted into the penthouse. He also rented three parking spots in the basement garage and had at least five cars, including a Mercedes-Benz and a Cadillac. He found this baffling because a realtor had informed him that King had attempted to buy a home five years earlier and had difficulties making a down payment. The owner provided the police with contact information for King's cleaning lady. Two FBI agents went interview her later, and she disclosed that she cleaned both apartments. She said she had not personally witnessed any uh, child pornography, but she did say that one of the security guards had alerted her to the fact that Nelson photographed young boys. One of the officers, Carmine, who had been working the investigation into King, responded to the call from Richard Young Hospital about Shanetta Moore. When they met, Moore had recently turned 15. 
Carmine, like the hospital staff, found that Moore spoke and acted maturely for her age. She told Carmine about being taken from the girls' club and photographed in the nude. She mentioned the leaders of the girls' club participated, in addition to other prominent individuals like doctors and lawyers, and she mentioned the threats used to ensure their participation. She also repeated her claims about devil worship rituals. Carmine noted that her descriptions lacked names of the participating adults and uh, lacked specific locations. Carmine was uh, able to gain Moore's trust, and they had a second interview the following week. There, she shared that she believed Larry King to be a supporter and participant of both CP and devil worship. She talked about a sex and drug party at one of his residences where she witnessed teenage boys performing oral sex on each other. She said the residence was on Wirt Street in North Omaha, but she could not provide the exact address. In his report, Carmi noted that Moore became evasive and lacked specificity when talking about King, making it evident that she was reluctant to provide further detail. Six days later, Moore called Carmine and gave him the exact address and phone number. He tried the number. Someone answered King Company. He drove by the address and saw an awning over the front door that had King inscribed on it. Officer Carmine and his partner Hawk, I think that's how that's pronounced, spent a considerable amount of time investigating King's possible links to, uh, to CP. They uncovered financial irregularities and potential leads concerning the exploitation of children, but the police reports abruptly and inconclusively end. Simultaneous with the police investigation, the executive director of the Foster Care Review Board for the state's foster care system, Carol Stitt, also began hearing murmurs about King. In December 1987, vestiges of Tasha Washington's DSS files were finally delivered to the board. Tasha Washington is the first case that we discussed about um, the foster care uh, children with the webs. Um, Stitt was dumbfounded by the universal failure to safeguard Tasha Washington uh, that was apparent in the files and began making inquiries into the system breakdown concerning Tasha. Tasha's former guardian at Lightum, Patricia Flocken, knew Stitt through work, and they began having conversations about the case. Flocken revealed to her the full extent of Ulysses' allegations and the existence of the report created by former Boys Town employee Julie Walters. Flocken was unwilling to give Stitt the report over ethical considerations, and after meeting with the executive committee of the board, uh, they concluded that they did not have enough information to act on. Uh, so Stitt launched her own investigation into the case histories of all the children who had come in to uh, stay with the webs. More accounts of child exploitation by King filtered into Stitt. She exchanged phone calls with Kirsten Halberg at Utah Haley and learned about the testimonies there. Halberg told her about a young man who was hospitalized at Richard Young Hospital and made allegations of sexual abuse against King to the personnel. Halberg also told Stitt that she had attended a child exploitation conference in Kansas City and a KCPD detective approached her, asking about if and when the Nebraska authorities were willing to address King. The detective told her that King had been in Kansas City area donating money to a, boy, a boys group home and shortly thereafter three boys came forward with allegations of sexual abuse against him. Flocken finally agreed to hand over the Boys Town report to Stitt. About a week later, Seanetta Moore is hospitalized. At this point, she had enough information to be able to meet with Nebraska Governor Kay Orr, 
who directed her to take necessary measures to investigate the allegations. A second meeting was set up to discuss them, but it was canceled without explanation. This sort of response would become a pattern in the governor's behavior to the case. Stitt compiled her evidence, including Julie Walter's report, and wrote a letter to Nebraska's Attorney General Robert Spire requesting an investigation. Another member of the board was Dennis Carlson, counselor for discipline on Nebraska's Bar Association, and well-connected to every level of the state's legal community. The same day that Stitt wrote her letter, he called Spire and discussed the allegations with him. They had built a good rapport over the years, and Spire promised him a quick response. Carlson then heard about the girl at Richard Young Hospital, Shanetta Moore, and got in touch with Officer Carmine of the OPD. Carmine revealed to Carlson that King was super sensitive and that the reports and investigations were being concealed from Chief Wadman because of rumors that they were friends. Officers conducting the investigation were not uh, submitting reports on King to the stenography pool to be typed, so they wouldn't be accessible to Wadman. Wadman's assistant had also been asking around if officers in the robbery and sexual assault unit were looking into King, and the officers lied to him, saying that he was not under investigation. The following day, the assistant attorney general, William Howland, visited Carlson's office. Carlson presented the information they had regarding King and voiced his reservations about OPD Chief Wadman, and thus why he felt it was necessary for the attorney general's office to oversee an investigation into King's activities. Howland assured Carlson that the AG office would act decisively on the board's behalf. Months go by with no revisitation, or in other words, no interview of Shanetta Moore by anyone from law enforcement. Calls from Carlson to Howland are met with reprises of assurances that he was on top of it, and they they were undisclosable reasons for the delays in the stalling. The OPD explained that Carmine had not revisited Moore because he had voluntarily transferred to a different department. Carlson sensed that the feds were taking over the investigation. Carmine had in his written reports to Wadman that the head of the robbery and sexual assault unit told him that the feds had ordered the OPD to slow down or back off from its Larry King investigation. The feds shut down the Franklin Credit Union on Friday, November 4th of 1988 for its financially unsound practices. The National Credit Union Administration set up shop in Omaha's Federal Courts Building and began processing claims by the endless lines of working-class depositors. A week after its closing, the feds had acknowledged that $30 million were missing and that Franklin had been generating millions of dollars through its high-interest CDs. King stated that, I've talked to my staff and they've told me that there are no unrecorded CDs. Shortly after the statement, the Fed revealed King's second set of books and reported that King had stolen $34 million and counting. So, um, as we get into the legal issues around the case, uh, it's important to note that Nebraska, uniquely in the United States, has a single-chamber system after the state discarded the House of Representatives in favor of, of a unicameral consisting of 49 senators from 49 legislative districts. A special session in the unicameral concluded with unanimous approval of Legislative Resolution 5, which called for an investigation of the credit union's failure. You can't get rid of that much money without someone knowing about it, said Republican Senator Lauren Schmidt. He received a phone call at home, urging him not to pursue the investigation into Franklin and to be a good Republican so that he can reach the highest levels of the Republican Party. 
Democrat Senator Ernie Chambers, who was famous for his appearance in the 1966 Oscar-nominated documentary A Time for Burning, which depicted his instrumental role in negotiating concessions from Omaha's power structure on the behalf of disenfranchised African-American youths in North Omaha, was aware of King's alleged pedophile network, unlike most of the other senators. Carol Stitt had briefed him on the child abuse allegations, which led Chambers to put pressure on the AG office and raise concerns to the nine-member committee that functions as Nebraska's legislative body when the unicameral is in between sessions. Chambers issued some remarks intended for the public about receiving reports of sexual and physical abuse of children in connection with Franklin and his suspicion of a cover-up. Eventually, a special Franklin committee was formed with the ratification of Legislative Resolution 5 on January 10th. Its sweeping mandate was to determine what happened, how it happened, who was involved, and what could or should have been done, and by whom, to prevent it. It would scrutinize both state and federal agencies, including the DSS, CPS, and Foster Care Review Board. Lauren Schmidt was named chair, and Chambers its vice chair. The first order of business was appointing a chief legal counsel. They debated it for a week or so and then invited former CIA director William Colby to apply. I felt after some of the comments I heard that the scope is broader than just Nebraska, and I thought that Mr. Colby might be able to handle that, Schmidt said. There were rumors that Franklin monies had been diverted to the CIA to support the Contras against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Colby and Schmidt had a mutual friend, John DeCamp. DeCamp had worked under Colby during the Vietnam War in the Phoenix program. The two remained close since then, and in 1983, DeCamp had introduced Schmidt and Colby. Colby flew in to be interviewed. He told the media that his interest in the case derived from the large amount of missing money. You've got $35 million that is unaccounted for, said Colby. You start on these trails, and it frequently goes into some startling areas. It's not just used up on fancy cars or something you've got to have some kind of bigger activity in mind. The committee voted to reject Colby for the position. The dissenting members felt that his $250 an hour rate was too high and his political baggage problematic. After interviewing some more candidates, they eventually voted for Lincoln-based Kirk Naylor. After initially retracting his application due to concerns that he would not be granted the authority to properly pursue the allegations, he reconsidered after personal insurances made by the senators of the committee and a conversation with Dennis Carlson, who assured him of the legitimacy of the allegations. He conscripted his old friend and colleague, Lincoln Petey's officer Jerry Lau, or Lowe, maybe, as the committee's primary investigator. Lowe collected all available newspaper articles about King and the credit union and read all the material compiled by the Foster Care Review Board. What appears to be documented cases of child abuse and sexual abuse dating back several years with no enforcement action taken by the appropriate agencies is mind-boggling, he wrote in a February memo to the committee's members. The information that became public in 1988 relative to Larry King's family connection with one of the principals is cause for further concern. The formation of the committee and its early questions refuted previous claims by state and federal law enforcement that the allegations had no substance and the Nebraska State Patrol and FBI to conduct their own investigations. So, Seanetta Moore, after several months at the Richard Young Hospital, is discharged. The state investigation, originally run by the state attorney general, 
um, in December is taken over by the state patrol, and they attempt to re-hospitalize Moore and question her about the allegations that she had made to Officer Carmine. They felt, apparently, that re-hospitalization would offer her protection and the same support system that she had prior to her discharge. Chanetto did not want to go back to the hospital. Her family and her caregivers from the hospital shuffled her around between homes uh, in order to stall and to make it difficult for her to be re-hospitalized. Eventually, the Douglas County uh, Commitment Commission stated that she was suicidal and living on the streets which the Douglas County Attorney's Office knew to be untrue, and they were able to have her committed under these false pretenses. She was severed from her support network and completely subject to extremely hostile FBI agents. On the day of Moore's first interview with the FBI, uh, which is December 19 in 1989, one of those caregivers, Hallberg, uh, received an anonymous phone call. Call said, you and your friend are doing the wrong thing trying to bust up my boy Larry King. Now it's too late. Now I'm turning into a bloodhound. That night, she reported the call to the state's primary investigator, Chuck Phillips, from the Nebraska State Patrol, who had recently taken over the investigation. During the conversation, Phillips asked Hallberg if there was some connection between Moore and King. Hallberg was taken aback, knowing that they had just interviewed Moore that same day, and she thought that he was being deceitful by asking such a disingenuous question. They also discussed meeting a resident of Utah Haley, where Hallberg had worked and first met Shanita Moore, uh, who would have relevant information to share concerning the allegations against King. A communication snafu led to an awkward situation the next day, when Hallberg and Phillips wound up barging in on the girl at her workplace while she was on break. The girl did not want to discuss anything of this sensitive nature at work, and Phillips became, quote, extremely angry and said he was tired of, quote, these kids being too scared to talk. Hallberg and Philip would meet again later that night at Omaha's NSP office. Phillips was now overbearing and hostile with a permanent scowl on his face. He would only accept statements backed by absolute irrefutable proof, and she felt intimidated and abruptly ended their meeting. She wondered what effect he would have on Shanetta and other young people if she felt intimidated by him as an adult. Phillips, a 20-year veteran of the State Patrol who had a background in the Army's military police before signing on with the NSP, uh, was transferred to the Franklin case after working closely with FBI agents Peter Brady and Jerry Tucker. Phillips and a team of FBI agents knocked on Opal Washington's door on December 28, looking for Ulysses, Tracy, and Tasha. Opal was scared and didn't want to let them into her house, but the agents managed to wedge themselves through her front door and press her on the whereabouts of her grandchildren. She refused to tell them and said she wanted her grandkids to meet Senator Chambers before they talked with the FBI. The NSP and the FBI weren't willing to accommodate these wishes. Instead, they tracked down Ulysses the following day and, according to Ulysses, grilled her for three to four hours. They did the same thing again the next day. Despite the grueling ordeal, Ulysses did not divert from the details about her trips to Chicago and New York that she had previously provided to Julie Walters from Boys Town. After completing their interview with Ulysses, they repeated the same procedure on Tracy, her sister. A relative who had become reacquainted with the three Washington sisters after they had moved out of the Webb household gave this quote to the Lincoln Journal about the situation. The FBI has accomplished what it set out to accomplish 
to make the girls seem as though all this were a fabrication. Patricia Flocken was interviewed the following month and also found the FBI extremely hostile. She said that the agent questioning her seemed pissed and repeatedly snapped that her information was hearsay. In early February, uh, so this is like a month and a half later or so, the Omaha World Herald published an article where the FBI's Frank O'Hara stated that they had one or two follow-up interviews to conduct, but after dozens of interviews, he concluded that there was no substance to the initial allegations. They quoted Larry King, It's all hearsay, and it's all garbage. And they also quoted Barbara Webb, They are not telling the truth. We don't know anything about this. In the article, Chief Wadman reiterated that the OPD immediately followed up on the Foster Care Review Board's July report and concluded that there was no substance. Five days later, the FBI and NSP investigators would interview Larry King at his Wirt Street residence. After a reading of the Miranda rights, they had a benign chat in which the agent slobbed softball questions at King. He denied everything, pandering of children, child pornography, drug involvement, and even his homosexuality. He spoke extensively about his participation in the uh, Presbyterian Church and of his piety. He adamantly maintained that he never had any nasty parties at the Twin Towers. The closest to any kind of depravity was the hiring of a couple of belly dancers for his birthday party two years earlier. He did, however, own up to subletting the apartment in the towers to photographer Rusty Nelson. King told the FBI that he found Nelson to be mentally deranged, unclean, and malodorous. He said that he summarily evicted Nelson when he heard that the police were looking into him for taking pictures of a young woman. Nelson would later tell Nick Bryant that he left the King sphere on bad terms. King also disclosed that he was good friends with World Herald publisher Harold Anderson, OPD Chief Wadman, and Nebraska Attorney General Spire, all three of whom do appear on his party invitation lists. He even said that FBI agents had frequented his parties, and then he looked at one agent in particular and said that he thought that maybe he had attended one. He concluded by stating that he never lied and would be more than willing to take a polygraph. Later, before a grand jury, Investigator Phillips would state that King never gave a polygraph despite consenting to one. Under oath, he maintained that they did not administer a polygraph test to King because they hadn't finished their investigation. They were still in the process of culling facts and interviewing additional witnesses. All right, well, that will do it for this uh, shorter episode this week, guys. Um, Thanks for listening, and next time we will pick up where we left off here and continue the story of the Franklin scandal. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.